For humankind cannot bear very much reality. So writes T.S. Eliot in his poetic masterpiece, The Four Quartets. This exquisite collection of poems is, among other things, one of the most provocative and insightful ruminations on the nature of time ever captured by a human being. In it, Eliot reflects on the way that time's urgency presses down constantly upon us and of how our actions, once taken, are irrevocable and thus of how we consequently spend so much time thinking about a past that we cannot change and about a future that is inherently bound up in the choices of the past. And this can be exhausting, and this can be overwhelming, and this can be depressing, Eliot's poem reminds us. Yet this is our lived reality, according to Eliot, and thus he writes... Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Now I bring up Eliot and the Four Quartets this morning, and I bring up this particular line from the Four Quartets this morning. Not so much to talk about the human enthrallment to time past and time future, that is not so much to talk about the subject of this quote, but rather... I bring it up this morning to point to the freedom that Eliot finds in time present. Which is to say, I begin by quoting that passage from the Four Quartets, so as now to quote this passage found just a few lines later. Speaking now of the spiritual potency of the present moment, speaking now of how the present is the place where time ceases to be a burden and becomes instead a potential blessing, Eliot now writes, and I quote, at the still point of the turning world, there the dance is, there where past and future are gathered, the still point. Except for the still point, he writes, there would be no dance. There at the still point of the turning world. There with fears about the past momentarily bracketed out. There with concerns about the future momentarily forgotten. There with agency and action truly in our own hands, there in the present, there at the still point of the turning world, there, Eliot writes, there the dance is, meaning here is life abundant. Here is an invitation to peace. Here reality ceases to be intolerable. Here in the possibility of the present, here at the still point of the turning world. Let's unpack that line really fast because here is a phrase that rings particularly true for us, does it not? The turning world. It's a particularly resonant phrase. For our lives are lived in a world, pandemic or no, that moves at a dizzying pace. 
No sooner have we dealt with one thing or attended to one thing or taken care of one thing than just as suddenly we are now responsible for another. And likewise, no sooner have we learned something new or mastered some new device or become proficient in some new skill than just as suddenly we are being forced to learn and master and become proficient in some other new thing, some newer thing, lest we get left completely behind by the ever-turning world. Urge and urge and urge, Walt Whitman writes in the opening lines of Leaves of Grass, always the procreant urge of the world. And boy, is Whitman right. Urge and urge and urge us, the world most certainly does. And as the four quartets suggest, it can be exhausting, can it not? But more than just exhausting, it can also be overwhelming, too, and maddening, and frightening, and in many cases, downright paralyzing. For the realities we are bound up by, to recall Eliot's language, which is to say, the lives that we are living, no matter what they might be, these inevitably give rise to so many fears and anxieties about what might come next, right? And all the while, we are also reckoning with the irrepressible yearning to go back in time and do things differently, even though we know that we can't. And thus all of this preoccupation with time future and time past, which those are givens of the human condition, all of this taken together with the inexorable movement of an ever-accelerating, ever-uncontrollable world. Well, all of this can at certain times feel like simply too much to bear. Hence, Eliot, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Okay, enough about T.S. Eliot. The Old Testament prophet Elijah, of course, lived long before T.S. Eliot, and thus he had not the faintest familiarity with Eliot's four quartets. But that fact notwithstanding, 3,000 years before Eliot ever put pen to paper, the prophet Elijah understood well that which Eliot would later be writing about. For when we pick up the story in our Old Testament lesson for this morning, that is, when we pick up the story of Elijah found in 1 Kings 19, here in this moment, reality has just become too much for Elijah to bear. And thus here, as our story picks up, we see Elijah running away. Running away from home running away from his vocation, running away from God, running away from himself. And so now he flees to the wilderness. 
And upon his escape, now all alone in the desert, he begins to pray for his own death. Oh Lord, he prays, just take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. In other words, I give up. Can't do it anymore. All my efforts increasingly come to naught. It's all just too much for me. Now, before moving on with this story, let us remember this is Elijah. Elijah, whose fidelity to God and whose prophetic action and whose commitment to the cause have by this point won him renown throughout Israel and Judah. Not to mention this is the same Elijah whom centuries later tradition will revere as one of the foremost Israelite prophets. Before moving on with this story, let us not forget that this is the man we are talking about right here. That here in 1 Kings 19, it is this man, having already done so much of what he'd later be lauded for, it is this man who now claims, I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm nothing. You follow? I hope so, because if so, we then see this for what it is, which is to say a shocking case of self-unawareness and of self-defeatism, if ever there were one. This remarkable man felt that way, we then do well to ask. Just as we do equally well to ask, okay, so if so, why then did this remarkable man feel this way? Why is he suddenly so downcast? Why has he now gone so dark? Why does he now think that all he has been and done is insignificant? Why does he now just want to give up? I suppose there are plenty of ways to answer that question, but here's how T.S. Eliot would answer it. Because for the moment, reality for him has just become too much to bear. Reflect back with me, if you will. By this point in the narrative, Elijah has done one major thing in his role as prophet, and then that not being enough, he has then been called to do another major thing in his role as prophet, and then that not being enough, he has been called to do yet another major thing in his role as prophet. And yet, despite all of that, despite all of his effort and his earnestness and his action, despite all of that, the world just keeps turning faster and faster, urging and urging, all the while demanding even more of him, while the consequences of these things past continue to pile up and further complicate the future. So now, all of these years later, it just feels too much for him. Consider further, here in 1 Kings 19, despite the aid that he has just lent to King Ahab, and despite the undeserved mercy he has just shown to King Ahab on God's behalf, and despite the way that he has just secured the stability of the nation state for Ahab when things were precarious and in deep doubt, 
Now, despite all of that, Ahab's wife Jezebel has called for Elijah's slaughter, and henpecked Ahab has lifted nary a finger to stop it, even after all Elijah has just done for him. And so having seen this story play out over and over again, this story of trying his best, this story of doing things the righteous way, this story of marshalling the energy to do something that he didn't really want to do in the first place, only to then have that thing backfire in his face, this story of then having to readjust everything so as to now manage the backfire while also beginning something altogether new. Yes, having seen this story play out over and over again. Well, Elijah has just had enough. And so that's where we find him in 1 Kings 19. Having had enough. And while this is no doubt a dark moment in the Holy Scripture, it is nonetheless a precious gift for us within the Holy Scripture because it shows us that when we ourselves feel overburdened and exhausted and despairing and insufficient to the task and incapable of starting over yet again, in those moments... This passage is a precious gift for us because it shows us that if an exemplar like Elijah wrestled with these things, then there is nothing wrong with us for time and again wrestling with them ourselves. Yes, it is good news. For who among us has not known the experience of trying our hardest at something, only to later come to believe it was all for naught? And who among us has not known the experience of having reckoned with the scary possibilities of the future, overcome with anxiety about our inability to control it? And who among us has not felt defeated over the happenings of the past, those things that we've done that we want to change, but with it our inability to go back and change those things or relive them? We all have. For that is part of being human. And so that then is the context in which this message from this wonderful story plays out. The context is that here is this remarkable man who is also profoundly human, just like us. But that meanwhile, here too is this God. This God who meets this man time and again in the midst of his struggle. And who inspires him to re-embrace the world and to live further into his call to transform it. Look now at the story. Now having run away to the desert, now devastated and defeated, desperate for a word from God, desperate for a sign, desperate for something that can give him the strength and the direction he needs to continue onward, now all alone on a mountain, Elijah looks for and listens for the voice of God. 
And suddenly there comes a mighty wind. And Elijah listens. But in the wailing of the wind, there is no sign of God. But then just as suddenly there comes an earthquake. And so again, Elijah listens. But in that calamitous clamor, there is also no sign from God. And then just as suddenly comes a fire, a massive, all-consuming fire. And yet again, Elijah listens. But here in this consuming conflagration, here there is still no sign of God. But then after that comes a silence. A heavy, haunting, harrowing silence. After the mighty wind. After the thunderous earthquake. After the consuming fire. Now after all of that. Now comes a reckoning with sheer silence. And suddenly the text tells us it is here. Here amid the silence. Here in the stillness. Suddenly it is here the text tells us that finally Elijah hears from God. Here that is to say at the still point of the turning world. You still with me? So we begin a new sermon series today, one that we are calling Scriptures That Sustain Us. And as you'll recall, I invited you all to write to me with your favorite scriptures, telling me a brief story about why that scripture is particularly meaningful for you. And many of you did, and I'm grateful to you for it. Well, shortly after I solicited these scriptures from you, I received a note from Isla Tribble telling me that her favorite scripture is Psalm 46.10, which is the famous counsel from God to the psalmist saying, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. This verse, Isla wrote to me, and I'm quoting, allows me to shut out the noises that surround us all day and night and to seek a quiet, still place where I can know the I am that is God. She then goes on to say, and still I quote, it's a great comfort to me living in a culture where all accolades and medals and honors and wealth and fame and glory are based on things we do to know that God loves us and is known to us simply by our being, end quote. That is, by our being still. And by there in the stillness being reminded that God is God and that we are not. With this, Isla also writes that along with Psalm 46.10, she also loves the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. As it reinforces her favorite verse, reminding her that God is not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but rather that God is there in the stillness. 
there at the still point of the turning world. I'm grateful to Isla for sharing these scriptures and these stories with us this morning because not only does she recall us to an important truth here, but she reminds us meanwhile of an immense tragedy, which is that our lives can become so busy and our desire to do more and to make more and to be more can become so insatiable And our attempts to establish peace and prosperity for ourselves can become so exhausting. And what's more, our inability to establish them can soon enough become so disheartening that we can quite literally wear ourselves out. Which is to say that we can soon enough lose ourselves in the clamor and the frenzy and the movement and the turning forgetting who we are and thus forgetting whose we are. Dear family, if it can happen even to Elijah, it can most certainly happen to us. And so then 1 Kings 19 reminds us that in those times when reality seems for us too much to bear, That peace is not to be found in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, which is to say in doubling down on our own attempts to keep pace with this ever-turning, ever-accelerating world, but that rather in those times peace is to be found in retreating to the stillness, to the quiet, to the silence, just as God told the psalmist it would be right there in Psalm 46.10. Dear family, in this season when there's so much that we clearly cannot control and so much that brings us anxiety and despair and so much that causes reality to feel too much for us to bear, let us then remember the caution found here in 1 Kings 19 about trying to answer our fear with frenzy or our anxiety with anger or our despair with destruction. Let us remember that God is not found there in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Yes, let us instead stand with Elijah alone atop the mountain, yearning for a sign from God But let us also remember to be still so that we might actually hear it. For it is here at the still point of the turning world that the dance is. For it is here that we once more hear the music of the God who sets that dance in motion. Be still, whispers the melody, and know that I am God. Amen.